Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for uh, this Shabbat and this opportunity to gather together as Mishbochad to be able to uh, worship you as one uh, people, as one body united in your Ruach, and to be able to receive from you uh, as you interact with us. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that it will be your voice heard, your words received, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, I pray that you transform our hearts and our minds that as we leave this place today, we will leave here uh, more in the image and likeness of our Creator, more in the emulation of Yeshua, our Messiah, and better prepared, equipped, and ready to impact the world around us with the Besor, the good news of Yeshua Mashiach. Amen. Amen. Um, with that said, if everyone will open up your Bibles to this week's Parsha of Aishlach from Genesis 32, beginning of verse 4. We're going to dive right into it. So obviously I didn't speak last week. We had a Rabbi Stewart in last week uh, who uh, spoke from Reach Initiative International. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but if you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to it. It was a, a really awesome message, um, and, and I really appreciate it when uh, a guest speaker comes in and doesn't just um, uh, share about their ministry, but, but speaks into uh, the community here as well, and, and Rabbi Stewart definitely did that, and it was much appreciated. Uh, but we didn't talk about last week's Parsha all that much because of the fact that we have a guest speaker. And so this week we're going to kind of pick up the narrative with where last week's left off. And if you remember last week, um, Jacob has now made his way to Laban's house uh, and is there trying to uh, make a better life for himself, which really isn't a better life. He's just trying to avoid losing his life if he runs into his brother Esau again. And so he's back in, uh, in, in Laban's house uh, and, and dealing with Laban, who we saw before that with Rachel, was really trying to kind of get in between God's plan and his people. And now is his opportunity. Now he's not just the brother trying to protect his sister, quote unquote, but now he is the father who is the one that allows for these things to go. And we see that Jacob, who is a trickster himself, ends up being tricked uh, several times uh, before he finally gets away and he takes off running. So last week's Parsha closed with Jacob on the run, right? He's getting away from Laban as fast and as hard as he can. Laban catches up with him. We see this whole uh, thing that plays out with uh, him trying to get away from Laban. Ultimately, he gets free, and now he's on his way back to Canaan, to the promised land, to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, or what would become the land of Israel, and back to the promises of God. So this is where we pick up at this week. Genesis 32, verse 4. It says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau, to the land of Seir, to the field of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, This is what you should say to my lord, to Esau. This is what your servant Jacob said. I've been staying with Laban and have lingered until now. Now I've come to possess oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I sent word to my Lord in order to find favor in your eyes. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We went to your brother, to Esau, and he's also coming out to meet you. And 400 men, armed men with him, or 400 men with him, tradition tells us they were armed men. Um, Jacob He's running from his brother, right? The whole reason he went to Laban's household in the first place was because he knew that, Jay, that Esau was going to kill him. Esau said, I'm going to kill him. As soon as my dad is dead, Jacob's dead. 
Uh, and so Jacob took off running. So now Jacob has made his way back to the promised land. He's on his way back, and he's, he knows the only way that he's going to be able to reside in the promises of God is if he restores relationship with his brother. So he's on his way back to the promised land. He sends these messengers out. They come back to him and said, hey, uh, we told Esau what's going on. Esau is coming out to meet you. Oh, by the way, he's got 400 dudes with him. They don't look happy. They look kind of mean. They've got weapons. This could get interesting. And so Jacob instantly goes to the worst possible scenario in his mind. Anybody else like that? Anybody else uh, immediately, something goes, worst possible scenario, right? That's me. Uh, mentally, that anybody that's ever pitched an idea to me in the synagogue will watch me go mentally through every possible worst possible outcome imaginable before we ever get to, a, oh, this might work. Let's try this. Jacob instantly jumps to the worst possible scenario. They've got 400 dudes and Esau coming to kill me. And he's going to wipe out all of my, my wives and children and so on and so forth. And he begins to get scared. Now he knows the value, the importance, and the necessity of restoring relationship with Esau. Right? And so immediately upon hearing that he's got 400 dudes coming after him, his immediate thought is, okay, let me figure out how I can lessen this blow as well as possible. Just in case this goes south, let me split my family up so that at least some of them can get away. And then as he gets done with that, he then sets up all of these lines of gifts after gifts after gifts after gifts of certain spacing apart to meet up with Esau. Verse 10, then Jacob said, this is after he hears about the, uh, the, the 400 men and Esau coming after him. This is after he splits his camp in two. Verse 10, then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, Adonai, who said to me, notice, he hasn't quite made it to my God. He's still saying, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. He hasn't quite gotten to my God. He says, oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Adonai, who, saved me, uh, who said to me, return to your land and to your relatives, and I will do good with you. And this is where he begins to become almost manipulative in his prayer, right? This is Jacob. This is kind of what he does, but we'll, we'll follow this through. Verse 11, I am unworthy of all the proofs of mercy and all, all the dependability that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed over the Jordan, and now I've come, become two camps. And we may wonder, well, what in the world does he mean by all oh, the proofs of your mercy and all of your uh, dependability and so on? We go back to chapter 28, verse 20. This is as Jacob, verse uh, 20, as Jacob is running away. He's resting there and he has this encounter with, with God. And as he's encountering God, he says, all right, here's the deal. You're for real. I get it. That's awesome. But I'll tell you what, if you make my journey successful, if you you make me profitable. If you bring me back here, if you do all of these things, then you'll be my God, right? Verse 20 of chapter 28, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and watch over me on this way that I'm going and provide me food to eat and clothes to wear, and I return in shalom to my father's house, then I will be my God. So the stone which I set up as a memorial stone will become God's house. And of everything you provide me, I will definitely give a tenth of it to you says, if you do all of this, then I will uh, make you my God. And so here he cries out. He hasn't quite said, you're my God. It's still the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac. But he says, you have done all of this for me. You have answered all my prayers. I am unworthy of all the proofs of mercy and of all the dependability that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I cross over the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. I don't know about you, but often that's how I find myself over the years talking to God is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something to happen. I want to see something happen. I say, okay, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. I mean, these if or statements with God. 
When the reality is what God really wants us to do is to go, okay, God, I don't know what you're going to do. I trust you. You said do it. I'm just going to do it. Right? This is what we see with Abraham. God says, all right, leave your father's house. Get up and go to a land that you've never known before, and I'll tell you when you get there. And he doesn't go, well, God, if you let my dad let me go, and if everything goes okay, and he just said, all right, cool, let's do this, and he hops on and walks. Verse 12, deliver me, please, from my brother's hand, from Esau's hand, for I am afraid of him that he'll come and strike me. The mother with the children, you yourself said, I will most certainly do good with you and will make your seed like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted because of its abundance. Is this really the way God wants us to approach him in prayer? Does he really need us to point out the great extremities of his promises to us? Does he really need us to point out the extremities of our interaction or lack thereof with him? Or does he simply want us to come to him and go, all right, you got this. I'm going to have to trust you, right? God called him to go back to Canaan. God said, hey, I, it's now time. Come back. You've got to go back to the land. You've got to go back to where the promise is because you're the seed of promise and the seed of promise flows through you. You have to go back to the promised land for this to work out. And Jacob makes his journey and even down to the wire, he's still going, but if you do this, but don't forget, you got to do it because you said that you were going to make me a great people. And keep in mind, you can't honor your word if you let me die at Esau's hand. So if you want to be shown real, you have to make this happen. And I imagine God sitting here going, like we said earlier, are you kidding me? This again. You, you didn't catch on before. You didn't see, I mean, you've left his, Laban's house with all of these children and with all of these herds and with all of this wealth and riches. And you left peacefully, even though you tried to get ahead of it again, right? The whole reason he left was because he tried to get ahead of God's will and promise. He was the seed of promise. It was already spoken. The birthright was his. He just had to wait for God to make it happen. But him and his mom schemed and made it happen in their own way. And then he had to run for his life. And now he's coming back, having cheated again somebody else to get ahead of what God's plan was for him. Uh, but finally he's here and he's crying out to God and says, don't forget that you said you would do this. But he very humbly and I think honestly humbly says to God, I don't deserve everything you've done. I don't deserve what you've provided for me. I don't deserve your dependability because I haven't been dependable. I haven't had a legitimate relationship with you. I haven't done all of this. He says, but please provide for me, protect me, care for me so that me and my family will live. Verse 1 of chapter 33 is where we're going to pick up at. And then Jacob glanced up and saw Behold, there was Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children first, then Leah and her children behind them, then Rachel and Joseph behind them. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And here's where the interesting part comes in. Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him hugged him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Notice the difference in the narrative of Laban catching up with Jacob and Esau catching up with Jacob. When Laban was chasing after Jacob in last week's Parsha, God had to meet with Laban in the middle of the field and say, look, you touch him, I kill you. That's all there is to it. He's mine. You touch him, I kill you. I'll wipe everything out. You'll never exist again. Nobody will speak your name again. I'm obviously taking some great license and paraphrasing this. But this is the message that Laban very clearly got and made clear to Jacob. I'm only not killing you because I don't want him to kill me. But when Esau comes to encounter him, he comes to meet with him in the field. He's walking up to Esau and he's bowing over and over again the whole way out. Esau drops everything and runs to him. 
and wraps his arm around him. Jacob doesn't say anything. Jacob doesn't get a word out of his mouth. And he runs up and he wraps his arm around him and he hugs him and he falls on his neck and kisses him. And they weep together. How beautiful a picture of restoration and reconciliation is this? How beautiful, and we can look today at the history of Israel and, and what we see throughout the rest of the Tanakh. We can look today at, at all of the drama that is playing out in the Middle East and we can see that ultimately, generations down the line, we really didn't work this out quite as well as we should have because all of the issues we have today between the, the Jewish people and the Arab people are really old family conflicts that we never settled and we never really dealt with. And most of Israel's biggest enemies throughout the history of, uh, of uh, leading up through the first and second temple, most of their biggest enemies uh, up through at least the first temple were really some of the out, uh, perimeter descendants of Abraham as Abraham stepped outside the will of God or, or uh, the, the descendants of Jacob and Esau as, they st- as Esau stepped out the will of God and so on. And we realize that most of the enemies that build up against Israel are really people that just wanted to be a part of what God was doing but weren't allowed to be for whatever reason. And they were pushed off by uh, the Jewish people. They were pushed off by what was happening. But there's this reconciliation in the family that needs to happen. There's this restoration that needs to happen. And we see the birthing of that here. It just doesn't become a generational habit from here. But what we see here is this beautiful image of restoration. And at the end of the Parsha, what we see is that Isaac dies. And it specifically says that Jacob and Esau came together and they buried him. Just like we see with Isaac and Ishmael, they come together and they bury Abraham. There isn't any bad blood between them. There isn't fights between them. Nothing's going on. As a matter of fact, Esau moves off and and establishes what becomes known as a dome, not because he didn't like Jacob, but because there just wasn't enough room for what God was doing in his life and what God was providing for their family in terms of wealth and what he was doing in Jacob's life and providing for them in terms of wealth. There wasn't enough room in the area that they were in. He didn't have any contention anymore against him. He just picked up and he left. The contention developed with his sons and their sons and their sons who went, but wait, we should have a piece of that. Why don't we have a piece of that? Why are we separate from that? And became jealous and angry and vindictive and began to have brushes of of battle and such against Israel. But what we see in this narrative, and I think one of the most important aspects of all of this, is that in order for Jacob to move forward in the calling that God had on his life, in order for him to move forward in being the seed of promise that God had already spoken was his, he had to first realign himself with the will of God. The promise was already his. He didn't have to steal it. It was his. I don't know how God would have played it out had he not done it, but, you know, he's pretty cool like that. He could figure it out. He didn't need us to get in the way. But he told, uh, that he said that Jacob was the seed of promise and all of this would go through him. He didn't have to cheat Esau out of it in the first place. But in order for Jacob to be able to move forward in being the seed of promise and seeing the promise come through him, there was a necessity for restoration and reconciliation for him to answer the call that God had on his life. As a matter of fact, what we look at when we see this Parsha, we see a couple of things uh, as we're looking for this idea of restoration. We see that in order for this restoration to come, of his calling in the promised land, in order for this relationship to be healed, in order for him to move forward in what God had in store for him, first there had to be reconciliation. That reconciliation leads to a uh, restoration of relationship. And that restoration of relationship leads to a new identity. His name was changed early in the Parsha. But it didn't become his identity until later in the Parsha when God made a covenant of that name change with him. But what we see is there's reconciliation which leads to restoration which leads to a new identity. Prior to that, Jacob was known as the trickster. His name was one who supplants. Everything he had, he had because he tricked his way into it. 
He got tricked along the way a couple of times as well, but everything he had, he had because he tricked his way into it. So what we see is Jacob broke relationship with Esau. The relationship wouldn't have been an issue had he not cheated Esau and had he not fled away like a coward and spent 20 years away. But in the time that he was gone, his heart didn't change, but Esau's did. And so when he comes back to Esau, Esau rushes to him and gives him a hug and a kiss. And they cry together. And I imagine that Esau's first words out of his mouth were something along the lines of, I love you. I've missed you. Stay with me. But he broke relationship with Esau. And after having tricked and robbed his way into everything he had, he had, uh, had to, uh, uh, robbed his way out of what he had uh, taken from Esau, which was really his in the first place. It was Jacob's promise in the first place. He didn't have to take it the way he did, but he tried to, and he ruined relationships. So in order for that relationship to exist again, there must have been, there must be restoration. In order for that restoration to come up, Jacob had to seek reconciliation with Esau, which is what we see. Jacob is on his way. And he's making his way to Esau. Esau's now making his way to him because Jacob sent messengers. And when they come together, Jacob is just looking for, I think to some degree, Jacob on the human side is just looking for, how do I get out of this? He's got 400 dudes coming to kill me. How do I get out of this? I can't. I've got to be here. This is what God told me to do. I need to have this relationship. I need to fix this. But how do I do this without dying? But nonetheless, he had to seek reconciliation. And Jacob had to make the first move. Esau didn't leave the promised land to go find Jacob, Right? Jacob had to come back to the promised land to find Esau. And when he comes back to the promised land to find Esau, he reconnects with Esau and they restore the relationship. There's reconciliation, restore the relationship, and then Jacob gains his new identity. Similarly, in the same sense, we broke relationship with God. This is really a picture, right? It's a foreshadow, a, a type and shadow of something of a greater promise. We broke relationship with God. As humanity, we broke relationship with God. We damaged our relationship. The more so, we damaged the image and likeness that we were created in. Most of you heard me say over and over again, my base core definition of sin is anything that we do that damages the image and likeness that we're created in. More so that we're recreated as believers in Yeshua. And so we've damaged this relationship. We've broken relationship with the Lord. And in order for there to be restoration, first there needed to be reconciliation. But unlike Jacob, we couldn't take that first step. Not because it wasn't rightly ours to take, but because in order for there to be a reconciliation that leads to an eternal restoration, it had to be a divinely inspired move. It had to be God himself making that move. So Yeshua provides that means of reconciliation, and he longs for that reconciliation to exist. So Yeshua made the initial move. He provided the means for reconciliation through his sacrifice on the stake and through his blood atonement for us and his interceding on our behalf in the Holy of Holies and the Heavenlies. He provided the means for reconciliation. But just like Jacob had to go to Esau, we have to go to the Lord. We have to approach him. The reconciliation has already been made. The, the, the means for it is already there, but we have to go get it. We have to approach him and we have to repent and we have to ask for his forgiveness and we have to be reconciled with him. And then once we approach him for reconciliation with a humble heart, notice Jacob approaches with a humble heart. He's bowing the whole way. You know the word we use in our prayers all the time, baruch, right? Baruch means to, to be blessed, right? Or it's, it's blessing, blessed. But it also means to bow. So he's actually trying to bless Esau on this journey as he's bowing before him over and over again. But it's with a contrite heart. It's with a humble heart that he's doing this. 
He's making it known to Esau that he's not coming with any ill, will, any Ill intent. He's not coming with any uh, uh, kind of attitude on his part. He's not coming to try and create a problem or make the problem worse. He's coming to make rest- restoration of relationship. And he comes humbly. And in the same sense, when we approach the Father to seek reconciliation with him, to gain restoration of relationship with him, we must do so humbly. We can't come before God in all honesty. I think Jacob's prayer is a little short of the fullness and the meaning of humility, right? We can't come before God like Jacob goes, does and go, hey, you know, I don't deserve all the good things you've done to me and for me and everything that's happened in spite of how horrible I've been. But I'll tell you what, if you do one more thing for me, I'll give you my heart. If you do one more thing for me, I'll accept your salvation and I'll walk with you. No, what God wants us to do is approach him with a healthy, hum- humble heart. To come before him with a contrite spirit and say, look, I have failed miserably. And I know if I continue on my own, I'm going to continue to fail miserably. I know that I've made a ruin of every relationship I've had, and even more so, I've made a ruin of relationship with you. I know that I have damaged everything that you created me to be. But I'm coming before you to say, I don't deserve anything you've done for me. But I know you've done it anyways. And I want to receive the blessing of restoration through reconciliation that you have in store for me. And through this restoration that comes through reconciliation, remember Yeshua's blood provides the means for reconciliation. And through that we can have relation, restoration of relationship with the Lord. And through that restoration comes what? New identity. And in that new identity we are no longer, as First uh, Peter says, we are no longer a people called not my people but instead we are called his people. We are no longer not loved, we are loved. We are no longer forsaken, we are brought in. We are no longer lost, we are found. We are no longer sons and daughters of wickedness as we read over and over and over again in Paul's writings, but instead we are now redeemed and restored in a new identity which is ultimately what we were created to be in the first place. So it's a renewed identity as the sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, as the sons and daughters of the Creator. And so when we seek the Lord through Messiah's sacrifice for the reconciliation that He's provided, there is a restoration of relationship that is available which leads to a new identity. And our new identity isn't in who we used to be or who we were in the ways of the world or who we were in the enemy, but our new identity is in who we are in Him and who we are portraying Him and who we are because of his salvation that he has provided for us. And unfortunately, for, for most believers, we spend so much time focusing on who we were that we don't focus on who we are now. And we remain in this mindset of Jacob stuck in the place of, but God, if you just do one more thing for me, then you'll be my God. Right now, you're just my father's God or my grandfather's God, but one day you may be possibly my God if you just do one more thing for me. But he wants us to be Jacob at the end of this Parsha, who when the Lord appears to him and makes a covenant, he says, I want you to go back to Bethel. I want you to go back to the place you first met with me, you first encountered me, where you said, if you bring me back here in Shalom, that you will establish my house here, Bethel, the house of God. You will establish my house here and you will make an offering to me in covenant relationship. I want you to go back there and I want you to do what you said you were going to do. 
The Lord doesn't want us to remain in our, our identity of who we used to be. He wants us to come into the identity He has made us to be. He's recreated us to be, and He's called us to be. He doesn't want us to focus on all of the things that we should have done or we could have done better. He doesn't want us to focus on all the people we left behind to damage. He wants us to focus on the new identity and the new creation that we are in Him because He's provided reconciliation that leads to restoration, that leads to a new identity. In Matthew 26, verse 36, says, uh, Yeshua, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought here. Matthew 26, verse 36, we see Yeshua in the garden of, of uh, Gethsemane and he's praying before uh, his, ultimately before he's put on the, the stake on the cross. He's praying at, at this time during Passover, the very beginning of it. And uh, as he's praying, you know, he tells the disciples, look, stay here. And as he's praying, he says, cries out to the Lord, uh, uh, your will be done, but not mine. Right, over and over again, he says, look, if it's possible, God, just take this cup from me. I don't really want to do this, but if it's possible, just take this from me. But he says, your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. He says three times that he does this. And in this act, if you pay attention to it, there's almost this Jacob kind of mindset to it as he's trying to battle. Because you've got to remember, Yeshua is 100% man, even though he's 100% God. And so he wrestles with all of the same uh, uh, kind of aspects of humanity, the same issues of humanity. Now, he's perfect. He never sinned. He never fell to, to temptation. He never fell prey to temptation, uh, taking over his life and leading to sin. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have the same mental issues, struggles, and thoughts that we have. And so here he is as he knows what's coming. The human side of him is crying out, God, I really don't want to die. I really don't want, I, I, I know what death looks like. I know what it means, and I don't want it but not my will, yours be done. You know why he put his life in the hands of God, in the hands of his heavenly father in such a way? Not because he couldn't have gotten out of it and not died, right? Everything that they threw at him while he was on the cross, well, let the angels come and save you. Could have happened. It absolutely could have happened, but it wasn't God's will. And the reality is, is that Yeshua wanted to offer his life as a sacrifice for ours, as a means of providing that reconciliation so that we could be restored, so that we could find our new identity. And even more so, he calls us to be like him over and over and over again in Scripture. How many in this room can think of any single moment in our lives where we've done something completely contrary to the will of God? Every one of us should be able to raise our hands. How many of us in this room can think of relationships that we've damaged? How many of us can think of lies that we've told? How many of us can think of lies that have been spoken to us, curses that have been spoken over us, things that have been spoken to us that are contrary to the way of God, the will of God, and His desire for our life? And how many of us have allowed those things to rule our lives for years upon years upon years? And how many of us realize that, in all honesty, the only reason those things are able to have grounding in our life and the enemy can have that kind of control in our lives is because we allow it. See, Jacob had to go to Esau to seek Esau's forgiveness. But in seeking Esau's forgiveness, Jacob had to forgive himself as well. Because the situation he found himself in, he found himself in because he did it. So in order to truly seek Esau's forgiveness, he had to forgive himself. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, we see uh, Yeshua teaching us how to pray or how to model a prayer. This is often called the Lord's Prayer. That's actually in John 16 and 17. This is actually just Yeshua giving us a model of what prayer should look like. Which, by the way, if you pay attention to the Shimon Ezra, the standing prayer, the Amidah, uh, however you want to call it, if you pay attention to it, um, this and, and the Amidah are actually modeled in very similar structures. But uh, he says in verse 9, Therefore pray in this way. 
Our Father in heaven, sanctify be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. Jacob had to forgive Esau for wanting to kill him. Jacob had to forgive himself for what he did to Esau. And the reality is, is in order for us to truly walk in the forgiveness and restoration that has been given to us, we have to extend the same forgiveness we expect from our Heavenly Father to those who have harmed us. And we have to be able, be willing to, uh, uh, to step into the role of instigating asking others for forgiveness so that they are not bound by the same control that they've given the enemy in their lives because they've not given up the pain and the anguish that goes with the wrong that others have done to us. We seek the Lord humbly looking for reconciliation so that we can be restored in relationship to Him. But the reality is is every person we come into contact with carries the image and likeness of God as well. And if we are harming people or if we remain in a role where we have harmed somebody and not fixed it or at least attempted to fix it, then that means that we've harmed the image and likeness of God here on earth. And in the same sense, when somebody harms us, they have harmed the image and likeness of God in our lives here on earth. And if we don't extend forgiveness just as we expect it from God, he says that it's freely given to us if we don't extend the same forgiveness to others, just as we see with Esau and Jacob, you think Esau didn't want to walk up, didn't spend 20 years of his life thinking if only Jacob would show up. Man, it would be so awesome just to smack the fire out of him, just to beat him. It would be awesome to be able to take back the power that he stole from me. It would be awesome to be able to kill him in restitution. I imagine for 20 years this was what was going through Esau's head. But also imagine the moment that his brother was coming back to him and he found out about it, that all of that faded away. The reality is, is that for however old you are, our entire lives, we've treated God the same way that Jacob treated Esau. We've harmed that relationship over and over and over again. And just like Esau, who waited for Jacob to return, and when Jacob comes back to him, he slings his arms around Jacob's neck and he kisses him and he cries over him. That's how our Heavenly Father is waiting for us to return back to Him because He's already provided the means of reconciliation. We just have to walk in that reconciliation. We have to accept it so that we can be restored in relationship with Him so that we can walk in the new identity which is ours. Far too often we as believers spend so much time focused on what we anticipate happening as opposed to what the Word of God has promised will happen. We anticipate people being angry with us when we go to seek forgiveness, when we go to restore relationship. We anticipate everything falling apart. We anticipate the worst possible scenario. Jacob, they've got 400 guys coming after you. Jacob's immediate thought, he's going to kill me. But imagine if Jacob had ran to him in the same veracity that Esau was running to Jacob. One, how much faster they would have been in restoration. How much faster the relationship would have been solidified again. But what we ultimately see is because of the reconciliation and relationship we see here, 
the restoration of relationship we see here, the new identity that we see in Jacob, the end of the, the Parsha, we see that these brothers come together united in love to watch their father be buried, to physically take part in that role. There's no infighting, there's no battling, there's no anger, there's no aggression. And Esau picks up and leaves, not because he's mad at Jacob, but because he recognizes that the promised land is Jacob's, the promise is Jacob's, and it's not big enough for both of them at that moment. But there will come a time, there will come a time where not only will all Israel's hearts be open to the restoration found in Messiah, but that the entire world will proclaim that the Lord is God. That the Lord is one and His name is one. And when that day comes, the promised land will be something far greater than we could ever imagine because the Alam Haba can hold anyone and everyone that seeks the reconciliation with the Father that leads to restoration and relationship with the Father. That leads to a new identity as sons and daughters of the Father. Jacob and Esau were both sons of the same Father. But it took reconciliation of relationship for them to be restored in brotherhood, united in brotherhood, so that they could walk in the identity of being brothers. Before that, they were simply enemies that hated each other. And we have, as individuals, walked for so long as enemies of the Lord because we walk in the damage that we have done. We walk in the pain and anguish that we have experienced and we walk in the sin of the world around us as opposed to the reconciliation and relationship, uh, restoration of relationship that has been provided in the blood of the Lamb. It's time that we change our hearts and our minds. It's time that we, the body of Messiah, go out into the world and share the reality of the promised restoration that is available. It's time that we go into the world and we not make further fools of what God has done for us, but instead that we share with the world what God has done for all mankind salvation to the Jew first and also to the nations. In Romans that Greek phrase actually goes more like salvation came to the Jews first and likewise or in the same way to the nations. Because God didn't create Jew and Gentile. He created mankind. And it's through the Jewish people, through the descendancy of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that he brought the promise of restoration and salvation for the world to come together united as one people, as heirs to the kingdom of God. And we carry the key to that. And it's time that we stand up, we stop walking in the past of who we used to be in our old identities and walk in the new identity that we have in God because of the reconciliation and re restoration that he has provided so that the world around us will see the true might and power of God and his people today. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you, Father. We thank you that your message rings true over and over and over again in your word. We thank you that your word is true and never failing. Father, we thank you that you have spoken promise and restoration over each and every one of us and that you have, in fact, given that promised restoration to us. And Father, we love you and we thank you for being a gracious and glorious God. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says... Amen and amen.